All right, I am going to be covering suffering. What is what is suffering, and how does it how does it act as a boundary experience back to God's original plan for man and woman? I'm going to kind of reconnect back to the beginning as we come to the end of our semester. Suffering really does help us to see the original experiences of man. How do we find meaning in suffering? What is suffering? And I think, you know, maybe before we talk about that, I think it's important just to very simply identify what is meant by health. You know, what is health? Health is wholeness. Health is wholesomeness. Health is living out fully our current capacity, right? So some people, you know, maybe fully living out their current capacity, which is half of what your capacity is. So it's very individual. But health, I think the best definition of, of health is wholeness, wholesomeness, which is very closely aligned to holiness. How does the medical community deal with suffering and death? Unfortunately, not very effectively, because how do we approach, you know, getting people back on their feet. Well, we like separate their parts and we study them individually independent from their totality, which is problematic, right? Because we are radically integrated. I spend so much time talking about how we're fully body and soul and yet the medical community separates us, fragments us, studies our parts and doesn't always reconnect with the whole. And that's why nurses are so important, because nurses are that effective bridge that should bring together holistically the entirety of the human person. And that's really a difficult job, but great nurses are able to do that. And so, um, so I want to kind of talk about suffering in a philosophical way in terms of how Sin, if you remember sin and shame, when we talked about the original experiences of the garden, we talked about original solitude as being our being made for God. That original solitude is all about, you know, being created for God. We're the only creature that's been created for God. That's original solitude. We're made for God. We're different from the rest of creation because we're like God. We're made for him. Original unity says, you know, the way to original solitude is through giving my life to another, to a cause, to a vocation. That my original unity and giving myself as a gift helps me to become holy and ready for the one for whom I am made, who is God. So original unity fulfills original solitude. And then original innocence is really a pathway to original unity or original solitude in the sense that I see the other as God sees them. Original sin is a boundary experience because it separates us from those original, those original experiences, right? So original, original sin provides a boundary now I can't go back into the garden, right? I can't go back there. So original sin is a boundary experience in that it creates shame. But shame provides two things to us, right? It provides a negative experience in that 
okay, I'm feeling shame because I'm about to do or I've done something that I'm not very proud of. But it's a positive experience, shame is, because it recognizes some innocence has been lost. So shame recognizes a good that I am really discerning not to embrace. And so shame can be a negative and a positive inkling. Shame actually reminds us that something precious has been lost. And that something precious allows a glimpse back into paradise. We can't go back there, but we know that this prior good existed. And the ultimate good is for what we've been made. Now, suffering also is a boundary experience. It gives us a glimpse back into the garden, into those original experiences. And I want to kind of walk through how that happens. So how is suffering a boundary experience? First, we experience suffering in the body. It's a corporal experience. There's a corporality. Corporal means body. It's a bodily experience. We experience it in the body. And so in physical suffering, it pushes us to ask the question, why? Why me? Why now? And this is how we're able in the midst of suffering to transcend ourselves, to go beyond ourselves, and to ask God the questions of our existence. We're the only creatures who respond this way to suffering. Although other creatures suffer, no other creature asks the question, why? And because we're able to ask that question, why? Why me? It's a question that transcends ourselves and is asking the only one who can answer the question, our creator. And so suffering is a boundary experience because it pushes us to ask the question why. And the only person that can answer that question, why, why me, why now, is the creator. So it is an effect. Transcend, it helps us to transcend ourselves and reach out to the one for whom we're made. And so that first way is really a way in which suffering connects us, reconnects us with original solitude. Secondly, suffering allows us to see our radical dependence on God and others. Whether it's a healthcare professional or the families that we depend upon for help and love, through our body, the person recognizes his or her vulnerability and dependence on others. They're broken open and they discover that they do not exist as an isolated individual, but in relation to others. This is in correspondence with the experience in the garden of original unity. That the creation of humanity is only complete in the unity of the two. A communion in which one becomes a gift to the other. And so suffering makes us connected with other persons, even if we don't want to be. We need others, right? We're made for union. We're made for communion. 
And so suffering is a boundary experience because it reconnects us to original unity. Thirdly, the third element at play in man's experience of suffering is the response of those with whom he comes into contact with, the environment in which he is received. The only truly human response to suffering is one of compassion, in which we reach out and care for the one who is suffering and even choose to suffer with them, which is what the word compassion means. Jose Granados, Father Jose Granados, who wrote um, a book on um, the theology of the body, says that the spectacle of suffering is a call to love, a call to love the sufferer and enter into union with him. When this call is accepted, a civilization of love emerges. In this way, the original experience of nakedness or innocence is seen in which we see the other as God sees him, that it is good that they exist, not for what they can accomplish, what they can do, what they can give, but because they are. Compassion and care for the person who suffers is never merely a one-sided venture, but is also for the culture, the community, for it to become a culture of love. Suffering is a call to those around the one who suffers call to respond. And so here we see in suffering these, a return, if you will, to the original experiences of the garden. This third response is a response of those who surround the suffering, the one who suffers. A response of love, a response of compassion, to see the one who suffers as God sees them and to have compassion for them, to suffer with to experience original innocence again. The second way is original unity, right? We get a glimpse into original unity when we recognize our radical dependence on others. When we realize that we don't exist in isolation, that we're made for communion. And then the first way is that original solitude in which we reach out to the only one who can answer the question that we have. Why me? Why now? And so we transcend ourselves and reach out to the Father. Even if we don't know, we're reaching out to the Father in that way. So those are some, some beautiful ways in which we, um, we can, through suffering, experience the original experiences or at least get a glimpse of them back to the garden. And it's why, you know, suffering is um, beneficial for the person. Suffering is not beneficial for animals, right? Because they can't respond <laughs> the way a human person does. They can't reach out rationally. They certainly suffer, which is why we can euthanize our pets, because they can't benefit from suffering the way a human person does. I want to quickly talk about the founder of the hospice movement, um, the founder of Death and Dying. Her name is Cicely Saunders, C-I-C-E-L-Y, Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, Cicely Saunders. She was born in 1918 in England, and she's really, um, her name is synonymous with the modern hospice movement. She's probably the first physician anywhere to get, dedicate her life to the care of those who are dying. Her work has revolutionized palliative care, pain management. She studied at Oxford at the age of 20. She studied politics, philosophy, economics. 
She interrupted her studies to become a student nurse at the Nightingale Training School at, at London's St. Thomas Hospital. Her family and friends were not happy about this. Nursing was not really seen to be um, a profession of those who were of the middle or upper, upper class to which she belonged. Um, but she felt really called to nursing. Unfortunately, a back injury forced her to leave nursing and she became a social worker and she obtained a degree in public health and social, social administration at this time. It was in this role she cared for a man, a Polish Catholic, who forever inspired her to do something about the care of those who are dying. This patient of hers was a refugee from Poland. He was a survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto. They became very close friends, and when he died, Sicily was left 500 pounds to be utilized to create a place where the dying could be cared for in dignity and with compassion. After the death of this patient, she began to volunteer at a, at a home for the dying in London. She wanted to learn everything she could about those with terminal illness. She was determined at that time to go into medicine where she believed that was the only way she could ever be in a position to assist those who are dying to die well. She was admitted to medical school in her late 30s. She took up a research fellow at St. Mary's School of Medicine and she conducted work at a local hospice there. And this is really, really where she laid down the principles of modern hospice care. She developed a systematic approach to pain control in the terminally ill patient. And she gave special needs, special attention to their social, emotional, and spiritual needs in addition to their physical needs. She made plans to build her own hospice, which eventually she, she did. Um, she, she opened up St. Christopher's Hospice, hospice in 1967, and she was the director of that clinic for the next 18 years. Um, she did research related to pain management, the efficacy of certain protocols for pain, um, and her work has been acclaimed internationally. And St. Christopher has, ha, has thousands of visitors each year to help people learn, to study with them, to be inspired with them. Um, she actually worked until she was 80 years old. She died in the care of her own workers at St. Christopher's at the age of 87 in 2005. Cicely had a, a philosophy, which I think is important for us to consider. And it's the philosophy that she called watch with me. She was a Christian and she had very Christian principles that really guided her care. Watch with me is kind of a, a response back to the Garden of Gethsemane in which Jesus asks his apostles to watch with him. And this is really what Sicily wanted the healthcare workers at St. Christopher's to do, to look at the person, to respect the person, their distress, to learn what their pain is like, what their symptoms are. And so it's really about caring with compassion, to suffer with the person, to understand what it means to lose function, to have this kind of pain, to understand the fear of losing one's faculties. 
a need to look at patients with a desire to understand them, not pity, not indulgence, but respect and an expectation of courage. She also had this insistence that we can learn from patients and that it's not only that we learn from other people who have degrees, but we also learn from our patients, from everyone. And that we have to have this um, persistence in, in staying with the patient, even if we can't cure them, that we're willing to stay with them, to watch with them. And this really validates persons that, you know what, I have a dignity in which this person is willing to watch with me, even if they can't cure me, even if I'm never going to respond in a way which they pray for and hope for and their medical science wants to give me, but that I'm, I am actually um, have dignity in, in just being who I am, even in my suffering. And so she, she really um, included these um, Christian principles in her care for the dying. Um, she had beautiful um, surroundings for them. She had crucifixes in the room. She had beautiful statues. She had a chapel for which they could visit. Um, and she really um, wanted to, to communicate to her patients that they were there for them, to listen, to understand, to keep them free from pain and distress, and to provide um, an arena for God to do his work of salvation. And so we were going to provide really the, um, the environment, and then God was going to do the work. I think a couple of things about Sicily's pain management is really important. Um, is that the patient really um, needs to have pain management, to recognize that pain management's aim is to make the body and its needs less obtrusive. And so how can I make my body less of an obstacle to my life than, um, than more integrated to who I am, which is what health is, right? So health is wholeness. And so how can I you know, have my body be more integrated into my very person and not become an obstacle um, to health. And so she really wanted to utilize pain medications um, to this end, um, to not totally diminish the quality of a person's interactions, but to assist them in being able to obtain a level of consciousness and also a level act of activity, which again, gives life. She said the greatest sorrow for the dying patient is the ending of relationships, of responsibilities. Weakness no longer allows us to serve in care as we once did. Being at the receiving end of care can be difficult. And yet this time can be used to heal, to reconcile. And so, you know, allowing others to be part of our suffering can help relationships to heal. And so Sicily says that health is more than an absence of disease or infirmity. 
the most effective use by an individual of the potential for living in physical, mental, and social well-being. That the aim of treatment of a terminal disease is more than the mere absence of symptoms. It is that the patient and the family should live to the limits of their potential. So the achievements are not merely in physical ease and improvement, though these may be considerable, but in the use made of time given by these to deal with past problems, to enjoy present opportunities, and to probe future plans for the family who must live on. And so she was really all about um, palliative care, symptom relief, um, and, and these, these, this palliative care may be relevant long before a patient reaches the end of life. And so um, relief of symptoms should be one of the hallmarks of um, care for Sicily. She also believed in, in death with dignity. Um, and so what does this mean? This means that there may, there may not be the idea that we're doing everything that we possibly can, um, that we're going forward at all costs, but we want to recognize, we want the patient to recognize that we want to be with them, we want to accompany them, that we are going to provide adequate pain relief, we're going to be with them, um, and that even if some medications may hasten life, we're going to relieve their suffering first, never intending to end their life, but intending to relieve their suffering. And so there is sometimes a double effect, right? That we, we want to give medications in order to achieve that pain relief. Um, there may be a consequence of, of decreased respiratory effort that's gonna be made, um, but we're not giving them the medicine to stop their breathing. And so we always have to have that balance. Sicily's um, treatment of patients um, who are dying revolutionized home care because she recognized that most cancer patients really want to die at home. 80% of the time that Sicily was really working in palliative care, 80% of patients died in the hospital. And so she really provided an opportunity and a pathway um, to home care with her palliative care. She also really recognized that terminal pain was probably a, a patient's greatest fear, and it's a justified one because sometimes physicians are afraid to give adequate pain care. Fear of addiction had been used as a poor rationale for not treating pain. And so Sicily really came to the idea and a revolutionary idea that cancer pain and terminal pain can be relieved well with little impairment of the patient's alertness or personality. And thus, oftentimes, quality of life can be maintained until the end. She recognized that cancer pain or chronic pain is different from acute pain, that acute pain has an end in sight, so it's more easily accepted. Cancer pain can appear to be unending except by death. It is usually constant. It wor worsens in severity. It's associated with other unpleasant symptoms like anorexia, vomiting, dyspnea, depression, anxiety. 
all of those things lower the pain threshold. And so, so Cicely said, no, we must end the pain. We must end the pain for the patient so that they can live out their life more beautifully. She deemed a term called total pain, and this is an important, important term. Total pain is a pain that's physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. It has all those components. She said mental pain can enhance any physical suffering. Her treatment for all of this was number one, to be present. Number two, to address the spiritual dimensions, to screen for psychiatric issues, to make sure that we're addressing social pain, which is relational pain, pain that individuals are experiencing because of family disruptions, and then spiritual pain, addressing regrets that patients may have, guilt, worthlessness, deep anguish. So we must involve their faith background. She also speaks about staff pain, and I think that this is an important thing, staff pain. So th there's pain that the staff undergo, right? A, pa a pain of being overwhelmed by patients who are suffering in a way that sometimes we can't always address. Pain of guilt, loneliness that, you know, Am I the only one that's feeling this for this patient? Exhaustion. And so Cicely also addressed kind of this idea that we have to attend to the staff's needs so that, you know, they've got the support that they need and they're not getting burnt out. Cicely was totally against euthanasia. She said that euthanasia implies that there's little value in the person who is dying and the journey that they're making. And so it, it, it really cuts short the patient's capacity to have peace. Euthanasia diminishes the ability of that person to complete the work in this life. Even when you don't believe in an afterlife, this is critical to peace. Time is often needed for the final summing up of what a life has meant. Time is often needed for reconciliation and meetings that can make a huge difference to the family's journey through bereavement. So the life of Cicely Saunders, I think, is an important life for us to keep in mind as we care for those who are in chronic pain, terminal pain, and at their end of life. Thank you.